Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Naomi. I support this program, and I hope you do, too. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Research suggests there may be arsenic in the chicken in your pot or on your plate, so food activists have filed a lawsuit. This was based on a report that showed that the majority of supermarket chicken had arsenic residues in it, and 100% of fast food chicken that they tested had arsenic residues in it. What comes next and how the FDA responds. Also, three years since the BP oil disaster, scientists still have many more questions than answers about the effects on the ecosystem in the Gulf of Mexico. What we're wondering is if this continued presence of oil is going to have a long-term effect on a fish's immune system and ability to reproduce and perhaps some DNA damage effects. We'll have those stories and much more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Health concerns have many people in the United States foregoing red meat in favor of poultry. But a new study from researchers at Johns Hopkins University has found excess levels of arsenic in chicken. In 2009, the Center for Food Safety filed a petition asking the Food and Drug Administration to ban arsenic in the food chain. But the FDA has yet to act, so the center is launching a lawsuit against the FDA. Lead attorney Paige Tomaselli joins us now from Japan via Skype. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. So first, Paige, how does this arsenic end up in the chicken we eat? Well, arsenic is a feed additive. It's administered to chickens, turkeys, and swine. It's an antimicrobial, so it's in the food that the animals eat. Well, when did people begin feeding chickens and turkeys and apparently pigs arsenic? It started in the 1940s. The first arsenic-based feed additive, Roxarzone, was approved, I believe, in 1944. And so for the past 70 years, arsenic's been administered to food animals. Well, wait a second. Arsenic is generally a poison. What's the advantage of using it in chicken feed? Well, arsenic is an antimicrobial, so it's used to treat parasites in food animals. But it's also used to increase the weight of animals so that they have more feed efficiency and to change the color of the chicken flesh to make it more appealing for human beings. And how common is the use of these additives containing uh, arsenic? In 2010, the industry estimated that 88% of the roughly 9 billion chickens in the United States raised for meat were administered arsenic-based feed additives. And what's the proportion of turkeys and pork that get this? Uh, the proportion of turkeys and pork is much smaller than chickens. It's mostly fed chickens. Now, what are the health effects for humans who eat chickens who've been uh, fed arsenic in their feed? Inorganic arsenic can cause cancer, heart disease, um, decreased intellectual function, and many other problems. Now, the amount of arsenic residue in chickens is not going to directly cause cancer. What it does is it increases the overall arsenic burden that humans suffer from just drinking water, eating rice, and all the other exposures that we have to arsenic. At one time, they thought that organic arsenic was not as dangerous as inorganic arsenic. But uh, recent studies have shown that organic arsenic, the kind that 
feed additives are made out of converts to inorganic arsenic, both in the gut of a chicken and the gut of a human. And so now we're finding that these arsenic-based feed additives are actually exposing humans to inorganic arsenic, which is a known carcinogen. So tell me about the petition you filed back in 2009. In 2009, the Center for Food Safety, along with the Institute on Agriculture and Trade Policy, filed a citizen petition with the Food and Drug Administration. The ask was that FDA immediately withdraw all approvals of arsenic-based feed additives for use in animal agriculture. This was based on a report that the Institute put out in 2006 that showed that the majority of supermarket chicken had arsenic residues in it, and 100% of fast food chicken that they tested had arsenic residues in it. We took this data and we asked the FDA to ban arsenic-based feed additives because of these arsenic residues and the potential burden on human health. And what was the response from the FDA? It's been three and a half years, and the FDA has not responded to the petition, which is why we filed the lawsuit, asking them to immediately respond to the petition. Should they deny the petition, then we would consider following an additional lawsuit for their failure to grant the citizen petition. What does the FDA say in response to your original petition and now this effort in court to get them to respond to it? Why so much delay? Why the silence? The FDA hasn't said anything to us as far as the petition is concerned. They have made statements in the media that they're reviewing the evidence, but at this point, they haven't done anything to respond to the petition. And there's been several significant events over the course of the past couple of years that show the immediate need for them to respond to this petition. And what are those events? Well, in 2011, the FDA tested chicken treated with roxarzone, which is one of the arsenic-based feed additives. They tested the liver, not the muscle meat that most people eat. However, the study concluded that the levels of inorganic arsenic were significantly higher for chickens treated with arsenic than those that were not. Shortly after, in June of 2011, Pfizer announced that it would suspend, not revoke, just suspend the sales of Roxarzone. And as far as we know, the decision to suspend is under internal review. Then, of course, there's the recent study that came out showing that the muscle meat actually contains inorganic arsenic as well. Tell us about this study out of Johns Hopkins. What exactly were their findings and how does that influence what you're doing? So the Center for a Livable Future tested chicken muscle. So that's what people eat mostly, chicken breasts, chicken legs, chicken thighs. And the results show that there's an increased risk of bladder and lung cancer. Additional people each year will get certain cancers if all chickens are fed arsenic-based feed additives. What is the level of risk here? If people in the United States only ate chicken, and that was their only exposure to inorganic arsenic, then there might be an insignificant risk. But the fact of the matter is, Americans are exposed to arsenic in a variety of places. They're exposed in water. They're exposed because wood was treated with arsenic. They're exposed in the foods that they eat. And so this significantly increases the overall arsenic burden on the population, therefore exposing them to additional cancers. So tell me, Paige, why do you think the FDA has been stonewalling you on this for the past three years? I think that there's a lot of industry pressure from the pharmaceutical companies on FDA not to completely ban certain feed additives. Part of the problem is that FDA not only has to deal with the pharmaceutical companies, but they're also dealing with the factory farming industry that would prefer to have access to all kinds of antimicrobials and antibiotics in order to increase their bottom line. So at the end of the day, this is an effort to continue to promote factory farming. So what advice do you have for consumers now about eating chicken? 
if you purchase organic chicken, you're not going to be exposed to additional arsenic. So my advice is to choose organic or to choose arsenic-free or antibiotic-free chicken at this point. Paige Tomaselli is an attorney with the Center for Food Safety. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We contacted the FDA for comment. The agency replied, quote, FDA continues to investigate all uses of arsenic-based drugs in food-producing animals and will take the appropriate action to protect public health. Think sushi, and you're likely to picture a dark red slice of tuna on gleaming white rice. A savory choice for you, maybe, but probably not for the ocean. Bluefin tuna, wild freshwater eel, and other sushi ingredients are in steep decline as more and more people develop a taste for this culinary delight from Japanese cuisine. Some see a possibility and a necessity for the ancient tradition of sushi to evolve and become sustainable. One of these people is a restaurant owner and sushi chef Bun Lai. Earlier this year, Living on Earth's Annie Sneed went along to learn and taste more. On a frosty winter night, Chef Bun Lai and his team are at the New England Aquarium in Boston. They peel tin foil from giant platters, revealing hundreds of pieces of sushi that range in color from neon green to fiery red. Tonight, Chef Bun is delivering a lecture on sustainable sushi and tasty tidbits to illustrate it. Tonight, uh, I brought five different types of rolls, two vegetable rolls. Uh, we've got a catfish over here with uh, okra and African spices, squid, squid ink, and broccoli mussels from New Zealand, uh, broccoli, roasted garlic, and Chinese black bean, sweet potato with kudzu dust, and fire ants. Of course, Bun isn't really serving kudzu dust and fire ants, but eating invasive species is part of his message. Thirty years ago, Bun's mother started her sushi restaurant Mia's in New Haven, Connecticut. As a teenager, Bun joined his mother in the restaurant kitchen. Back in the day, it was a traditional uh, sushi restaurant, and we served all the types of seafood uh, that are popular today. Chef Bun still works with his mother, but the menus changed. The reason we stopped serving tuna shrimp, and a slew of other popular uh, sushi ingredients that uh, everyone expects today is to be able to show people and to challenge ourselves to see if we can thrive as a business without using those ingredients uh, that are so incredibly destructive on so many different levels. Mia's menu now features invasive species, such as lionfish and shore crabs, and eight pages of vegetarian sushi. And Bun connects with scientists and organizations like the New England Aquarium to deliver sustainable food. Tonight is all about making those connections between the ocean and what you're going to have on your plates later. So please join me in welcoming Bun Lai. Thank you so much for uh, having me. Tonight at the aquarium, about 50 people, grandfathers, college students, even toddlers, have come for Bun and his innovative sushi. Bun's dressed in jeans and a black shirt. He's in his early 40s and doesn't look the stern sushi master. He slips in jokes in a deadpan tone. If you don't pay attention, you'll miss his humor. The first thing that you should try is uh, the Asian shore crab. And uh, you just kind of 
eat it with your fingers. It's all finger food here, and, and hopefully it doesn't bite your tongue. If it does, it's never broken skin, I'll assure you. Before you just bite in. His audience obediently picks up the little crabs and starts chewing. Certainly unusual. Yeah, it was tasty. They try it all from mussels to sweet potatoes. Kiss the smiling piggy vegetarian sweet potato roll. After the lecture, people stick around to talk with Bun and to score a few more pieces of sushi. The sushi was absolutely delicious, and I was really excited to hear Bun talk. He's a, really an inspiration. I'm a high school student who's really interested in sustainable seafood and following that in college. So it was, it's, it's really great to have people, like role models like Bun. The lecture was, was very fun. This is the first time I've actually tried sushi. I've never been very excited about it. And uh, I would say, you know, it was interesting. All right, do you think you'll eat sushi again? Probably not. The kids were probably least intimidated by Bun's strange ingredients. Crabs, you can just eat like popcorn, they're really crunchy and good. And the message of eating invasive species hit home. Oh, I thought it was amazing, this thought of why don't we eat up what we don't want invading. I have to say, I never thought of it that way before. I have extra plates if you'd like to take some sushi. Do Bun knows his unusual version of this very popular cuisine isn't for everyone. Throughout my career, it's been a situation where uh, often people walk out because uh, we hadn't been carrying tuna or shrimp or freshwater eel, you know, the most popular uh, sushi ingredients. So if they don't think outside the box, they're, they're not going to think uh, that it's sushi. But uh, food has been evolving since the beginning of time. In the origins of sushi, when it first started out thousands of years ago, most of the popular ingredients that we eat today and think as sushi uh, weren't considered ingredients for sushi anyway. Bun and a handful of other sushi masters are helping that evolution along. He hopes that people leave his lecture not only with a full stomach, but also determined to eat only sustainable sushi. For Living on Earth, I'm Annie Sneed. up how the tiniest living things in the Gulf are doing three years after the BP oil well disaster. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Three years after the catastrophic Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, scientists are still piecing together the extent of the disaster. Much of the visible oil from the nearly 5 million barrel spill has been scrubbed from beaches, but there is troubling news from researchers who study some of the smallest creatures that form the bottom link in the food chain. Biologists and ocean scientists from the Center for Integrated Modeling and Analysis of the Gulf Ecosystem, or SeaImage, have been gathering data about those tiny creatures, and reporter David Levin has been listening in. For people on shore, the effects of the Deepwater Horizon spill in April 2010 were pretty easy to see. Oil washed up on pristine beaches and wetlands. Ocean life lay dying, covered in sticky brown stuff. There was a large mortality of dolphins, sea turtles, seabirds. On TV, when you watch those oiled seabirds, it's just heartrending. That's Kendra Daly, a biological oceanographer from the University of South Florida. When the spill happened, she saw plenty of images like those. But she says her first thought wasn't about the animals on TV. It was about the tiny organisms in the Gulf called phytoplankton and zooplankton. Phytoplankton are small plants and zooplankton are small animals. They're often smaller than sand grains. And even under the best circumstances, they don't live very long. Their entire lifespan might be weeks, days, sometimes hours. 
And after the Deepwater Horizon disaster, Daly says those plankton started dying off fast in record numbers. So something obviously stressed the phytoplankton and zooplankton during that time period. And of course, the big suspect is the oil spill. The mere fact that plankton died wasn't too surprising, she says. Some laboratory studies have already shown that certain species are sensitive to oil. But she says scientists weren't expecting what happened next. When phytoplankton are sick or near death, they start releasing a sticky, mucousy substance. And so when currents and turbulence push these smaller particles together, they stick together and form larger particles. So you might have a, a mass of different types of dead organisms that are all glued together with this sticky substance. And so they ultimately become heavier than seawater and then can sink out quite rapidly. Those sinking particles are called marine snow, and it's natural in the ocean, at least in small amounts. But after the spill, the level of marine snow in some parts of the Gulf went from a flurry to a blizzard. Huge clumps of dead and dying phytoplankton stuck together, mixed with oil in the water, and formed balls of oily, mucousy goop. <laughs> yes, long, stringy pieces of goop might be a better way to describe it. What we observed was much higher density of these particles than we typically observe. And the fact that they were oiled, we could see oiled dark brown particles, it was unusual. As it sank, that marine blizzard brought oil down with it to the ocean floor, where it slowly collected on the bottom. Less than six months after the spill was officially over, the blizzard had deposited a slimy layer more than eight inches thick in some places. You get this gelatinous ooze on the seafloor. It's got the consistency of snot. I mean, it's really gross stuff. Patrick Schwing is a postdoctoral researcher at USF. The ocean floor is his domain. He studies tiny shelled animals that live in and around the sediments on the bottom. They're called foraminifera, or forams for short. They're single-celled organisms. Most of them are in a spiral shape, just like a shell that you'd find on the beach. Some of them live in the water. Some of them live in the mud. Lately, we've been working with the ones that live in the mud. As the pulse of oily marine snow drifted to the bottom, Schwing says it settled right on top of where those forams live, putting them in direct contact with the oil and with all the chemicals inside it, even dangerous ones. Yeah, essentially poison to the, the forams living in the sediments. In other words, Schwing says, wherever there were thick deposits of marine snow, there were lots of dead forams. All right, so this is the, the paleo lab back here. In his lab, Schwing shows me just how bad things got. On the table, he points to tiny dishes filled with forams he collected from the seafloor in the Gulf. What we've been doing lately with the forams is uh, looking at them under a microscope, counting them, um, just for how many are there, who's there, those kind of questions. The first dish he shows me is from December 2010, when the layer of marine snow on the ocean floor was still thin. The forams are easy to see, even without a microscope. There are hundreds of them in the dish. They look like a tiny pile of sand. But the next dish is totally different. It's a sample collected in the same spot three months later, once that oily marine snow had really started to pile up. By then, it was a few inches deep. Moving to February of 2011, um, you can see with your naked eye that there's virtually no forams, um, you know, six of them in the entire sample. Six, compared to the hundreds in the other dish. Um, and that says a lot. You know, you'd expect these guys to be pretty ubiquitous on the seafloor in the Gulf of Mexico. Schwing says that in some areas, those forams still haven't come back. And that's a big problem, because they're the main food source for a lot of other animals on the ocean floor. Take out forams, and you starve some species of snails and worms. But the effects don't stop there. Forams are eaten by larger critters that kind of root through the, the mud. And then those critters are eaten by fish, and the fish are eaten by humans. 
Well, if you knock out a level of the uh, food chain, it's a cascade effect. Dana Wetzel is a senior scientist at the Moat Marine Laboratory in Sarasota, Florida. She's investigating how fish from the Gulf were affected by the spill. Wetzel studies oil toxicity in marine life and says it's possible that fish feeding near the bottom weren't just being starved as their food sources died. They were also being exposed to dangerous chemicals as they rooted around for food in the oily muck on the ocean floor. If you've got a high concentration of oil in the sediments and you've got fish that either forage in the sediments or make burrows in the sediments, you've increased their exposure levels. She says it's too early to tell exactly what the oil or oily food is doing to those fish. But in many places in the Gulf, the slimy mix of dead plankton, forams, and oil at the bottom doesn't seem to be going away. What we're wondering is if this continued presence of oil is going to have a long-term effect on a fish's immune system and ability to reproduce and perhaps some DNA damage effects. And is that short-term, is it long-term? These are the real serious questions. In the end, wiping out the tiny creatures isn't just an ecological disaster. It's an economic one. When ocean life suffers, so does the Gulf's multi-million dollar fishing industry, which has taken a big hit. And that means Gulf residents might be feeling the ripple effects of the spill for years to come. For Living on Earth, I'm David Levin in Tampa, Florida. David's story comes to us from Mind Open Media. To learn more, dive into our website, LOE.org. One of the oldest alternatives to fossil fuels is hydroelectricity. The Hoover Dam, Egypt's Aswan Dam, China's Three Gorges Dam. These massive facilities control flooding and generate power. They can create economic opportunity, but also destroy livelihoods and ecosystems. Case in point, the Gibe Dam on the Omo River in Ethiopia, under construction since 2006, and potentially the fourth largest dam in the world. It's hugely controversial, in part because it would disrupt the almost seasonal floods that hundreds of thousands of indigenous people have depended on for centuries. Philemon Leili, a local activist, told us why the river is so vital. These communities depend on this river. It's really part of their life. They have thousands of years of fishing grounds and also farming land. This river, it's like... I remember one of the leaders saying that it's like our cow, you know, when they depend on the cow milk. So this river is like our cow that we milk every time. And this never gets old. So the government is trying to take our cow and use for itself. And now we will be starving. What reports have you heard from people you trust at home in Ethiopia about the violence? The army has been deployed everywhere. You can't talk anything about the dam. You can't talk anything against the government. One of my friends whom I know was confiscated of all his electronics, the computer was seized by the, uh, the state government, and his documents and file were taken out. And um, he's now in problem, in trouble anyway. So he's scared even to talk to me because they monitor every step. Even his Facebook is under them. Well, environmental activists have taken up the cause, among them Survival International. The organization's Elizabeth Hunter explained it's not just the dam that's a problem, it's also other actions of the Ethiopian government. 
a few years ago, um, the then Prime Minister, Melissa Nawe, announced that the government was going to literally take over a whole lot of land in the Lower Omo, which is home to several tribal peoples, and turn it into vast sugarcane plantations. Simultaneously, we also discovered that quite a lot of land further down towards the Kenyan border has been earmarked and leased out to private companies where they are embarking on growing things like cotton, biofuels like oil palm, etc. Now, the only way that these plantations are viable is by irrigation from the Omo. And what the function of the dam, one of the main functions, as well as selling electricity, is going to be that it will regulate the flow, which will enable them to pump water to irrigate these plantations. They will also do away with the natural flood, which the tribal people depended on to plant crops, what they call a flood retreat cultivation. So it is effectively a double whammy. Um, The plantations plus the irrigation is simply going to destroy the livelihood of all the tribal peoples that depend on the Omo. What does the projected economic benefit of this dam? What does the government say? Well, the government has touted it as this is bringing, you know, immense benefit to poor Ethiopians, and it's also enabling them to make money by selling surplus electricity to neighboring countries such as Kenya. I think the reality is, is what the dam is doing is enabling a land grab. The government is grabbing land that belongs to tribal people, and they are saying we're planting sugar in all these biofuels. This is what's going to make money. Um, And then the question really is, a lot of private companies stand to make a lot of money on the backs of indigenous people, and indeed, you know, eight to 12 tribes, whole tribes of people are going to be affected. Can one really call this viable, and is it development? I, I think not, not with that human cost. Now, how does this fit into the indigenous rights uh, there in Ethiopia? Well, the Ethiopian constitution has several articles. For example, one article guarantees that Ethiopian pastoralists have the right to free land for grazing and cultivation, as well as the right not to be displaced from their own land. There's another article that says that the peoples have the right to full consultation and the expression of views in the planning and implementations of environmental policies and projects that affect them directly. Now, the Ethiopian government has simply ridden roughshod over its own constitution, as well as international constitutions, such as the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, on the Africa Charter on Human Rights. And now what is happening because of this program to turn over so much of the land along the Omo into plantations, they have simply gone in there and said, well, we're consulting the people. They've held one or two meetings and people have very clearly said, we want to remain on our lands. And where they have met opposition, the government has been incredibly heavy-handed. I mean, we're getting reports of terrible human rights violations. Um, I've interviewed and talked to people on the ground who've given graphic descriptions of arbitrary arrests, people being thrown into jail, being beaten up. Some people, we've got reports of rapes. Um, This is purely because people are standing up saying, we don't want this on our land. What are the ecological consequences of the dam? They will be very considerable. First of all, because you've got the plantations, the government is at this moment destroying the wildlife, destroying the environment to build these monocultures. So it's going to be catastrophic for wildlife as, of course, for the tribal people. In fact, the area was declared a a UNESCO World Heritage Site on both sides of the border in the Omo and in Lake Turkana in northern Kenya. Who is paying for the construction of this dam? 
Well, um, that's an interesting question. I mean, we know that Salini, this construction company, is building the dam and that one of the Chinese investment banks is funding the turbines. The World Bank recently announced that it was going to fund the power lines and sort of rather ducked the issue, was very economical with the truth, saying it's not funding the dam, but it's funding the power lines. Obviously, the power lines are an essential part of the dam. So the Ethiopian government has got funding um, from the international community, essentially. Uh, although it is interesting to note that both the Africa Development Bank and the European Investment Bank just declined to fund the Gibe Dam for a number of reasons. And one of them, I think, was because there was a recognition that this is going to be extremely serious for the peoples who live in this area. What are the avenues to take this on in court? Well, Survival has made a submission to the African Commission on Human and People's Rights because we felt that the chances of really getting any justice in Ethiopia were zero. The courts work very slowly, and there are question marks about the independence of of judges. And we felt that it had reached the stage where this situation is so serious that we'll soon reach a point of no return. So we've gone to the Africa Commission. Um, They're considering that petition now. You make it sound like there's nothing to be done. This is just going to go ahead. These people are going to be displaced. It doesn't seem like anything is going to stop it. Or do I have that wrong? No, actually, I don't agree with you. I know it sounds very bleak, but I do think that there is a lot that can be done. And I think a very key point in all of this is public opinion. If enough people put pressure on their governments and on the Ethiopian government, I think we can see some change. I mean, for example, I I did get news that this very big sugar plantation, which is known as the Kuras Sugar Project, is not as big as was originally envisioned. Um, They've made it a smaller concession. And and I think that has been, this is an example that they have um, responded, albeit slightly, to, to public pressure and international concern. So it is possible to change things. Elizabeth Hunter is with Survival International in London. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. We contacted the Ethiopian Embassy in Washington. You can find its statement in full on our website, LOE.org. It reads in part, quote, Far from a social and environmental disaster in the making, all the evidence suggests a major and controlled social and beneficial transformation is in process. Certainly, it will impact on the local population, and yes, it will mean changes, but these will provide major improvements in living conditions and the environment. The advent of spring brings with it the arrival of migrating birds and fills our skies and gardens with song. And as Mary McCann reminds us in today's bird note, the cheerful warbling is not confined to daylight. As darkness descends on a May evening, the voices of many birds go quiet. But for some birds, especially those known as night jars, the music is just beginning. In the moonlit shadows of an eastern hardwood forest, an eastern whippoorwill shouts out its name. The same evening, in a southeastern woodland, we hear the loud calls of a chuckwill's widow. West of the Rockies, the voice of a common poor will echoes across a canyon. (laughs) 
along the Rio Grande River at the southern tip of Texas, a common paraque calls from the thorn scrub. And in the desert night on the Arizona-Mexico border, a buff-collared nightjar repeats its Spanish nickname, Tucuchillo. I'm Mary McCann. To see some photos of these merry wanderers of the night, swoop on down to our website, LOE.org. Coming up, wild weather and whales. Stay tuned for more of Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Imagine jumping in the biggest puddle you can find or playing barefoot and feeling squidgy mud ooze up between your toes. How about letting the wind push you along? There's no need to stay cooped up when it's wet, windy, or cold. That's the introduction to the Wild Weather Book, Loads of Things to Do Outdoors in Rain, Wind, and Snow. It's a sort of recipe book by Fiona Danks and Joe Schofield describing activities that require little more than the right weather and a child's imagination. Recently, a teacher in southeastern Massachusetts got his after-school contingent cooking with some ideas from the book, and Naomi Ehrenberg put on her waiters to check it out as well. School is out at Friends Academy in Dartmouth, Massachusetts. Cross-legged on the library floor, it's me and five kids. Zeke. Casimir, Asta, Chloe, Frankie, and Mr. Zine. That's Peter Zine, the teacher in charge of these first and second graders. And so guys, today we're going to be using this book. It's called The Wild Weather Book, Loads of Things to Do Outdoors in the Rain, Wind, and Snow. What type of wild weather do we have today, do you think? Wind. Wind, definitely. So we're going to do some activities that utilize the wind that will allow us to build stuff and have some fun outside. So guess what we're going to do first? We are going to do an activity which makes music with cooking stuff. So look at this. Look at this picture. The kids lean in close to examine a photo of children hanging kitchen utensils on a tree in the wind. You guys see that picture? So here's what we're going to do. Listen to this. Raid the kitchen for whisks, wooden spoons, skewers, pan lids, and anything else you can find that might make a noise. Try banging them together to see what different sounds you can make, and then choose some to hang along a stick. So we're going to figure out how to make a wind chime out of all this stuff. What do you guys say? We go outside? Yeah. Make something? Yeah. All right, bundle up. It's a short walk to the open space behind the school, where there's an enormous copper beach as well as a few young trees. The children grab spatulas and salad tongs and bang them together to test the sounds and then look around for the best tree. 
What tree do you think we should use? That one. That one, that that one, one. has really strong branches. How are we going to do this? Does anybody have a plan? I do. The boys explain their construction schemes, but a couple of the girls are experimenting with their pizza cutters and kitchen shears. I'll help clip the grass. <laughs> I'm clipping the grass. These tools do more than just kitchen work, huh? Mm -hmm. We could landscape. He's cutting the grass, I'm clipping it. We have string also. They trim the lawn for a bit, then return to their chosen tree. Soon these six and seven-year-olds are lacing string through the holes on spatula handles, tying knots, and arranging their music makers on a low branch. Very cool, Frankie. Oh, wow, you've got three on there. And the kids find even more uses for the utensils. A pair of tongs with a hole at the top can turn into a telescope. <laughs> I need a photo of you doing that. Can you look, one of you look through there? Yeah, why don't you hold it up? <laughs> hey guys, why don't you come down and see what's going on over here? I can see from up here. You have a good vantage point there, Frankie? Yep. Wow, that looks pretty nice. So which utensils are hitting each other and making noises? Um, okay, so this is a potato masher. <laughs> pizza cutter. Spatulas. Um, whatever this thing is, I don't know. Maybe a salad scooper or something. Ooh, good for you. The pizza cutter is also something that Asta uses to cut grass. Check out this bug I found. <laughs> Girls, come over here for a minute and let's see if we can hear our wind chime. Not much as a little too much. I think this is a pretty cool wind chime. What do you guys think? Yeah. 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 With the wind chime finished, some of the kids wander off onto the lawn. Soon we'll have our very own maple tree right here. Yay! Did you guys plant that or did you find it? We, we just found, found it. It has to grow big and fast. Maybe someday you guys will come back when the tree's big enough for you to build a wind chime on it. <laughs> Yay! Hey, hey, don't pick it, don't pick it. I'm not. <laughs> As Peter Zine is packing up his string, the kids hum along with their wind chime. I'm not good at making sounds. <laughs> All right, guys, say bye to your wind chime. Bye, wind chime. Bye, little plant. Bye to your little tree friend. And I want to show you something very cool. And then we'll try to think about how we can make boats. We head down a grassy slope toward the trees and a vernal pool. As soon as we're in the woods, the kids notice a strange sound. What's that? What's that sound? Wood frogs. Sound like ducks, don't they? They sound like ducks. So if you guys want to wait here, I'm gonna go in the I'm gonna go in and grab some for you. wades into the water and collects some wood frog eggs in a plastic tub. I can do it! What do they feel like? They feel like jello. <laughs> they feel gross. Tadpoles growing inside. Don't do pop them. Do not pop them. You want to try to pick it I up? I can't Frankie? go in No. <laughs> what do you think? Cool. Don't break them up. 
There we go. We'll keep them together. And you want to say bye to the frogs? Bye, little frogs. <laughs> the kids find everything interesting. Frog spawn, fox tracks, fallen trees. It's not clear whether they'll focus on making boats out of twigs and leaves, the way those smiling children in the book did, but their teacher sounds confident. So we're gonna try to make a boat. What do you think we can use? Because we don't have materials for this one. I didn't get anything. Zeke, what's your idea? This could be like the sail. It could go like this to make the boat go. Excellent. Zeke holds a big oak leaf vertically on one palm so the others can see and imagine it transformed into a sail. Let's gather some materials for making a boat. Use your imaginations. The five boat makers set off, eyes trained on the ground, skirting the pool's edge. My feet are way under this mucky water and I'm looking for like a good leaf to like. Hey Kaz, Zeke has an idea, but he would like some help tying. Do you think you could help him out? There's plenty of string. Still, it's tricky to figure out how to tie leaves or pine needles onto twigs or bark. This is hard. Maybe get down low. Could, could you help us? I would love to help you, yeah. I'll go back into the water real quickly. I don't care if I get my jeans messy. <laughs> Look what I found. Wow. This does not float, though. <laughs> how come? And even if the boats float, you could face other problems. How could we try it out when, when it's like so deep water? That's a good question. What do you think we'll and, do? And, and how do you do it, like to pull it back? Ah, that's a really good question. You could do the string. You, 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 you could like attach the string to it. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, then you could go like this. Then you could pull it back. Hey, Jess, try not to get too much water in your boots, okay, bud? Try not to poke anybody in the eye with that. Despite the challenges, all of the kids have gathered up leaves, twigs, moss, pine needles, bark, maybe a bit of mud, and designed a very small watercraft. I have a very thin piece of wood for the bottom. I have a holly leaf for the sail, and I have t three twigs for the edges. You want to tie that on? Don't tie my finger on. No. <laughs> I hope my boat works. It floats. Now that is a good boat. Mm -hmm. Okay, <clears throat> grab it back out of the water. I don't think we'll need Some those. Sticks are and with that successful launch, it's time to collect all of the boats, the string, the wild weather book, assorted coats and hats, and trek back up the hill to the school building. I hope that everyone had a good time, but it's hard to tell. Then Kaz speaks up. That was really fun. Are we going to do any more? I would, but I think your parents might be here to pick you up. What was your favorite part of what we just did outdoors, of all the things we did outdoors? Touch the frog spawn. Mm, I liked everything. As for Peter Zine, the teacher, Anything that encourages youth to get outside, I love that message that the book sends, that just because it's wet outside or windy that we don't have to retreat indoors, that you know, there's still a lot of fun things to do outside. I love the way they were showing off their boats. <laughs> yeah, they were quite proud. They didn't need to be too complicated. The smallest ideas used big imagination, so the kids had a lot of fun creating those boats, yeah. And maybe that's the essential message of a book like this, that any activity can launch kids' imagination, creativity, and discoveries. 
and perhaps a maple sapling will sprout up behind Friends Academy, where Chloe, Frankie, Kaz, Asta, and Zeke were the first to notice it. For Living on Earth, I'm Naomi Arenberg in Dartmouth, Massachusetts. Back in January, we reported on the right whale in the wrong place. In the winter, northern right whales typically give birth in the warm waters off Florida and Georgia. But this winter, a whale named Wart had a calf in the chilly waters of Cape Cod Bay, the first time in 27 years of data collection that scientists had ever seen a baby right whale that far north in the winter. And scientists at the New England Aquarium and Whale and Dolphin Conservation were very concerned that the baby might not survive. Regina Asmuda Silvia is senior biologist at Whale and Dolphin Conservation in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and we called her to get an update on the wayward whales. Regina, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you for having me. So I'm on the edge of my seat here. What happened with Wart and her baby? Well, I am very, very happy to tell you that Wart and her baby are doing well. Um, the aquarium reported a sighting of them on April 18th. Uh, so the calf was about three months old, and it looked really healthy. It looked fat. Mom was feeding. So it's a really good sign that at least while they face other threats, she's over the hump, I think, mom is, Ward is, with caring for this calf and having had it in cold water. So it looks very, very positive. So by April 18th, the uh, calf is good to go in terms of surviving the northern winter. I hope so, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, at three months old and seeing that the calf looked healthy and getting confirmation that, you know, it's still with mom and it's still feeding and it's very, very hopeful. And so there's always issues with all right whales and all calves and, you know, particularly moms and calves because they spend so much time at the surface that ship strikes continue to be a concern and entanglements continue to be a concern for the species in general. But, you know, I, I think our, our concerns are a little bit late about the fact that, you know, it was born here and it looks like that's not the problem now. It's the problems that the population and the species face in general that we'll remain concerned about for all of them. By the way, is this boy whale, girl whale? We don't know. Uh, you can't really tell by looking at them. You can do it genetically if you get a skin sample. You can do DNA testing or if they roll over. Their genital slits are on the underside of the tail stalk, and so there's little slits that the moms have that are mammary slits from where the calves nurse from that are absent in the males. And so unless they roll over and you get a good look at that underside of the tail stalk, you can't tell. Or obviously, if you see an adult whale, a mom with a calf will always know what's a female because she's had calves. So it's not an easy thing to visually do. How much milk does a mother right whale give in a day to a baby? The calves will drink about 40 to 60 gallons of milk a day, and it's a really rich and fatty milk. So um, while it might not seem appetizing to picture or want to consume, it's kind of think of like a, a mixture of sour cream and, and uh, cottage cheese and yogurt together. And it's very rich and fatty like that. So now it's the middle of May, and uh, I'm wondering if Wart and her baby have been joined by the rest of the right whales that are ordinarily around. We did have in April... Uh, huge amount of right whales in Cape Cod Bay and unusually on the west side of the bay. It's not where we typically see them. Um, most of them have left the bay now, and we think that what they usually do is they leave the bay in, in mid-May, end of April, mid-May, and they head out east of Cape Cod to the Great Salt Channel. Um, that's what we think they do, but, you know, I think as Wart and her calf surprised us here, you know, there's always potential surprises for how things are going to change. You know, I think we're all waiting to see where they're going to show up. 
Now, you say that you saw the whales on the west side of the Cape Cod Bay, of, of the arm of the Cape. What does that do for them in terms of being in a marine protected area? It's a big concern for us because the west side of Cape Cod Bay is not protected. Um, just the middle and eastern side is, and in part that's because historic sightings have shown that that's where they prefer to, to feed in the late winter and early spring. Um, but we had not only wart and her calf on the west side, um, we had probably a third of the right whale population that was on the west side of the bay at the end of April and beginning of May, and the food was very thick. I, I actually get a call from a harbor master in Duxbury and who told me that they thought they had a pilot whale stranding in 10 feet of water. And I went down there to go check it out, and it was a right whale skim feeding probably 100 yards off the beach, and it was just going back and forth. And it's very unusual to be able to stand on a beach on you know the west side of the bay and watch these animals. And we probably had, at one point, maybe 130 right whales between the Cape Cod Canal and Green Harbor, which is just a little bit north of Plymouth. So I think that that's just really important for the government agencies to recognize that these animals do use the west side of the bay and that area does need to be protected. So if the animals are there, then whatever they eat must be there. Yeah, yep, they're feeding on tiny little crustaceans that are zooplankton. They're tiny little microscopic animals called copepods. And the copepods were very, very thick on the west side of the bay. We don't know how they find their food. We have no idea, but clearly they're good at it. And they basically grazed it out. They spent as much time as feeding on it as they could to a point where they had diminished the copepod population and then they take off for, in this case, it's not greener pastures. I guess the copepods are red, so they're looking out for redder pastures in other parts of the ocean now. Hey, where will they feed come summer, do you think? Usually they go from the Great South Channel in early summer and then mid to late summer, um, early fall, they'll head up to the Bay of Fundy in Canada and around northern Maine and going up into Canada. And again, I say usually because nothing's been usual about this year, so we're just going to kind of watch it and see what happens. When we talked to you last, it was too early for Wart's baby to have a name. He hadn't yet developed the the markings that you scientists use to identify a whale, but uh, has that changed in any way? No. Officially, that calf won't get named probably for a year or so. Unofficially, we've all come up with all kinds of nicknames, but no official name yet. Okay, what's your favorite unofficial one? Uh, one of the ones we were jokingly kicking around for it just because Wart's the mom is Blister. So we've got Wart and Blister, but, you know, we don't have any real official names. And we're just, you know, names aside, we don't, aren't worried about the name so much as we're worried about the well-being of the animal. So we're, we're looking forward to the calf actually getting to be a year or two old so it can officially be named um, because that obviously will be a great celebration in and of itself. Regina Esmuda Silvia is a senior biologist at Whale and Dolphin Conservation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And uh, next time you see Wart, give her a hug for me, would you? Absolutely. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Alicia Zhuang, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show, and we're glad to welcome our newly intern, Ponzi Rutch, aboard this week. We also have a special thanks to Ari Daniel Shapiro and Mind Open Media, with support from the BP, the Gulf of Mexico Research Initiative. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. 
and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield, working to produce healthy food for a healthy planet. Stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and the Town Creek Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.